0: fresh to john's gospel at this point it's great that we spend time worshiping meeting with the Lord, and it's great that we we sit with the scriptures under them learning from them challenged by them deciding to hear god and live by them john 13 verse 18 i'm not referring to all of you jesus Continues after washing their feet. I know those I have chosen, but this is to fulfill the scripture. He who shares my bread has lifted up his heel against me. I am telling you now before it happens, that when it does happen, you will believe that I am he. I tell you the truth, whoever accepts anyone I send, accepts me. And whoever accepts me, accepts the one who sent me. After he had said this, Jesus was troubled in spirit and testified, I tell you the truth, one of you is going to betray me. His disciples stared at one another at a loss to know which of them he meant. One of them, the disciple whom Jesus loved, was reclining next to him. Simon Peter motioned to this disciple and said, Ask him which one he means. Leaning back against Jesus, he asked him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, It is the one to whom I will give this piece of bread when I have dipped it in the dish. Then dipping the piece of bread, he gave it to Judas Iscariot, son of Simon. As soon as Judas Judas took the bread, Satan entered into him. What you're about to do, do quickly, Jesus told him. But no one at the meal understood why Jesus said this to him. Since Judas had charge of the money, some thought Jesus was telling him to buy what was needed for the feast or to give something to the poor. As soon as Judas had taken the bread, he went out. And it was night. when. I give to you, love one another as I have loved you. So you must love one another. By this, all men, all people will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Simon Peter asked him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus replied, where I'm going, you cannot follow now, but you will follow later. Peter asked, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Then Jesus answered, will you really lay down your life for me? I tell you the truth, before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. This passage is on the back of the foot washing of that amazing revelation of the love and power of God. It's a little bit like a scene in a film where you know there's an epic moment about to happen and the scene is cast and it's poised and hanging. It's a bit like someone in a raft down a river and you know there's a waterfall, (laughs) for they're not quite there yet. Among the apostles, the one absolutely stunning success was Judas And the one thoroughly groveling failure was Peter. Judas was a success in the ways that most impress us. He was successful financially and politically on face value. He cleverly arranged to control the money of the the apostles, of the followers of Jesus. He skillfully manipulated the political forces of the day to accomplish his goal. And Peter, it seems, was a failure in ways that we most dread. He was impotent in a crisis and socially inept, he puts his feet in always. At the arrest of Jesus, he collapsed. A hapless, blustering coward. In the most critical situations in his life with Jesus, the confession on the road to Caesarea Philippi and the vision on the Mount of Transfiguration, he said the most embarrassingly inappropriate things. Peter! Peter! He was not the kind of companion we'd want with us in the time of danger. And he wasn't the kind of person we would feel comfortable with in a social occasion. Time, of course, and the benefit of hindsight is wonderful. And that's reversed our judgment of these two men. Judas is now a byword for betrayal. Peter's one of the most honored names in the church and the world. Judas the villain, Peter the saint. Yet, the world continues to chase after the successes of Judas, financial wealth, political power, and defend itself against the failures of Peter. Ineptness and impotence. A story of characters, Jesus, of Simon, of Judas. And this curiously titled, One that Jesus Loved. The beloved, probably most likely to be John, the writer of this gospel. They've all been there. They've all gathered with Jesus as Jesus washes their feet. All been profoundly ministered to, blessed, served by Jesus. All of them been with him on the road, in the villages, in the communities. All of them witnessed the amazing Powerful work at Jesus, the transforming, liberating, life captivating Jesus. And here at the turning of, of the story, poised for what Jesus said must and will, and his purpose to happen will happen. Three amazing characters. Judas' betrayal may be the most famous one in all of history. Not because, not only because of whom he betrays, but also because of who he is. He's not the outsider, he's not the terrible despot who's breaking down the door. He's the friend, the companion, the one with the insider, in the inner circle, the close one with Jesus from the start. What could be more treacherous than that? But because we know how things turn out and we skip to the end and it kind of reassures us, we tend to imagine him as, as a sort of fringe member. Some of the paintings in history, kind of in the Last Supper, sort of portray him as that, you know, the, the pantomime villain, Boo hiss. Yeah, that's the odd one out, the crooked nose and the... You know, the the slightly sinister look. Yeah, we can spot them a mile off. But it's not true. If anything, he was, as I indicated, one of the most trusted of the 12. He was put in charge of the money. It was his job to keep food at the table for them and for the poor. He was their kind of treasurer they trusted him to manage their resources. They hadn't got much, but it was responsibility of Judas to make sure that what they had was used wisely. And Judas is one of them, one of the 12, one of the Lord's friends, one of the ones who was fed at the Last Supper, one of the ones who Jesus stooped and washed his feet, one of the ones who'd walked hundreds of miles with them and laughed and sat talking around the cook fire and slept together under the stars, the happy band. Judas was there at the wedding in Cana when Jesus turned water into wine and he was there when 5,000 people stuffed themselves on five loaves and two fish. He saw the lame man pick up his pallet and walk and watched. The blind man's eyes focus for the very first time. He was there when Lazarus came out of his tomb When Jesus shouted, Lazarus, come out. If Judas had really been the odd man out, the others would have known right away who Jesus was talking about at dinner. But they didn't. Who is it, Jesus? They asked. Very truly, truly, I tell you, one of you will betray me. Can you imagine? Can you imagine? And they all ch- stopped chewing for a moment because they couldn't imagine who it might be. This betrayal by an intimate friend is the stuff that nightmares are made of. It's a theme that gets picked up in story after story, movie and book, like Deceived or The Hand That Rocks the Cradle or bestsellers like The Firm. You think you know someone well and find out that you do not. It hurts, doesn't it? Betrayal. Betrayal from those closest. We can have guard against those who are outside, but those that we've let down the barriers with, when they betray us, my goodness, it goes deep. So many of us understand that, caught out by that. Your business keeps losing money and, and you run an audit and you learn that your trusted partners robbed you blind. Or you come home one afternoon to find your young daughter in tears and she tells you that her uncle or your brother has been coming to her bedroom at night. Or you're opening the mail one afternoon and you discover that your spouse, who's been acting a little bit strangely, has been seeing someone else. Betrayal can be as dramatic as that or it can be much simpler. A friend gossips about you behind your back. A co-worker uses privileged information to steal your best account. A parent disapproves of the person you love and, and disavows you from the family. Betrayal by strangers is hard enough, but betrayal by those who are close, it's a killer, isn't it? It destroys trust, robs the past, deadens the heart. The barbs go deep, the shutters go up. We'll protect ourselves. In Dante's Inferno, the lowest circle of hell is reserved for these traitors. There's Judas there and Brutus and Cassius, and they're frozen in ice for all eternity. But even Dante is clear that it's Judas Iscariot who will suffer the most, for he betrayed his friend with a kiss. It could be that this betrayal is the deepest pain Jesus will undergo in the days to come. First Judas, then the rest of the inner circle. Then the treachery of the crowd, his own people. Choosing to free the bandit, the insurrectionist, the terrorist Barabbas, instead of their long-awaited king. Crucify him, Jesus. Physical pain, yeah, he endures a lot, but, but this pain goes deep because he's abandoned, betrayed, and left alone. Abandoned by those who are closest to him. To be stabbed in the back from behind by those who know him best. This is a wounding as fat as the nails that pin him to the cross. In the midst of this story, wonderful Jesus. Verse 21, after this, Jesus was troubled In spirit. That word troubled is kind of cropped up in John's gospel. It's a word that that kind of keeps coming. When he saw the distress at Lazarus' tomb, he was deeply troubled. He wept. The word is used when he's at the pool of Bath Cider and, and the, the, all those who are in need of healing and, and the disabled were there. And, and they were waiting for the waters to be troubled by the, the spring, for it to bubble up and, and to be, for the still water to be sort of consumed in that, in that motion. And that's the word that's used there, that the still water is troubled, it's welled up, it's, it's kind of effervescent. Jesus isn't just sort of serenely floating through this episode, unaffected and serene. Instead of not a hair out of his, you know, it's, like, well, it's not just like, oh, he's got a hair out of place. Actually, he's, he's deeply moved, convulsed by the troubles, by the activity that's going on, by the work of Satan behind it all. At the abuse in the temple He's angry, deeply troubled at the desecration of the holy place. As human lives, uh, he, he, he sees robbed of who they are meant to be. He's deeply troubled. And in the midst of it, he speaks and loves. The love of Christ in its sheer graciousness. Someone says, necessarily imparts to the recipient to us a sense of being uniquely blessed and chosen. When Simon Ponsonby was here on our, our um, summer conference a couple of years ago, he, he talked on John 21, and, and the sermons online encourage you to listen to it. He, he goes into far more depth about what it means to be the beloved disciple. And people think, well, I'm in, am I not beloved? Is it just John, the special one, John, the favoured one? What about me? Am I kind of second class? And Simon and, and, and this passage say, no, there aren't the special insiders. Actually, we're all uniquely blessed and chosen. The first character that sort of doesn't play much in this story, but John, the one that Jesus loved, the beloved disciple, reminds us that the focus of Jesus' attention is on us too, uniquely blessed, uniquely chosen, uniquely loved. That if, if any of you can't say, I'm, I'm a beloved disciple of Jesus. If you think, well, that other person sitting next to me, or, or Phil, or Edward, their ministers, they must be kind of like more in favor with God. You've not grasped the gospel yet. We're all uniquely loved, and you're all uniquely chosen came a lovely uh, picture of this. You know if you're standing by uh, the sea on the sun is setting and you look at the sun and it's like there's a golden pathway right to your feet on the beach. Isn't there? And that's the love of, an image of the love of God to each one of us, grace extended. It's like stretching through time to us, this lovely golden pathway by which all of us are reminded and affirmed we are uniquely loved. As the love of God beams into our lives, the unique sense of personal privilege. He loves us. If you think you're a second class Christian or God's love is for others but not for yourself, hear that you're loved. And the grace of God, the beam of God to you this morning, know that. And there's Judas and Peter, Simon Peter. Two great characters. A reminder that the terrible wisdom in this story is that the church has far less to fear from the outsiders than perhaps the insiders. We're so much more likely to encounter the enemy in our midst than in the world beyond our doors. Those who hurt us deepest are those closest. Again and again in the history of the church, it's, it's not the assailant from outside. Although they do damage, but often people reflect and say persecution from outside will often strengthen a church. It's not to belittle the horrendous things that are going on, and they are horrendous. You just have to listen to the stories of Christians in Syria. There are people attacking dreadfully. But so often, again and again, it's those close, those inside, those we love, those who've eaten at our table, those we've prayed for and with. Oh my goodness, that hurts. Just a little bit on Peter before, a bit more on Judas. You know, Peter and, Peter and Judas give us this kind of ambiguity in the story we know the end, but don't skip there too quickly. That the disciples were all around that table thinking, who is this one to betray? Who, who is it? And, and Jesus sort of says, lays it out really clearly and says, I'm going to dip a piece of bread and I'm going to give it to the one. And he does, and it goes to Judas and he says, do what you're going to do, do it quickly. And Judas leaves. And they still think he's going out to do something for them. They've not, you know, it can't be Judas. He's one of us. And Peter falls into the all-too-common trap of thinking out loud and saying, I'm going to follow you. I'm going to live. I'm going to stick by you. It's not going to be me, Jesus. And at the end of the story, he says, and even you, Peter, you're going to betray me three times when the cock, the rooster, crows. Sadly, in the history of the church, we can be like the Peters, one minute, singing loudly our worship songs and loving our books of theology and the Bible and making plans for global mission. Words just don't always mean enough that even the most zealous can lose it sometimes. And Judas kind of is like the dark side. You know the reference to the film. Why? To understand Judas is the shadow side of the church that we're not immune from. We have it in us to betray those we love. We do. We have it. Each one of us has it in us to betray those that we love. John tells us that Jesus revealed that one of the twelve would betray him. No one looked at Judas as the obvious candidate. And Jesus gave him bread and said, it's you. And they said, no way. No matter who we are, John wants us to know that how large our experience of Jesus might be. Unless we're resolved in loving obedience to walk with him, we run the risk of betraying. Judas looks like a believer on the outside. Inside, he thinks he can serve God and money. And and Jesus washes his feet. And and Judas is as loved as much as the others. But he's right on the cusp of betraying. Jesus quotes Psalm 41, 9. Even my close friend whom I trusted, who has shared my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. You know, the disturbing thing about Judas is that it's possible to resist even the prolonged personal appeals of Jesus and to turn away at last into darkness. To refuse the light of Jesus means to choose darkness where no light will ever shine again. Even even in that last supper, when Jesus showed them the full extent of his love for them, Judas chose darkness. It's not possible to understand Judas without understanding Jesus as well. Because Judas doesn't act in a vacuum. He makes a chilling choice. But he's not the only one in the story. Jesus makes choices too. Choices that may change the way we see the one Judas makes. Was he a true villain or a divine pawn? Do it quickly, said Jesus. His assignment. Was Judas really a bad guy? Bad apple. Right from the beginning. Did he draw the short straw? Why? Was it just plain greed, wanting money? Uh, Was he trying to catalyze because he wanted God's kingdom and Israel to be restored and it wasn't happening in the way that he wanted so he kind of catalyzed by going to the religious authorities and said, I will hand you over to him. He was a zealot after all. And when it became clear that Jesus wasn't going to meet his expectations, it was Judas who believed he had been betrayed. Jesus wasn't the Messiah that he'd hoped for. And he turned. But whatever Judas' degree of guilt and whatever his motive, we don't ultimately know. It's extremely important to note this, that Jesus identifies his betrayer by feeding him. He doesn't point the finger and say, get out. Hospitality. Not by turning over the table and shouting. Not by tying him to his chair so he cannot carry out his plan. But by feeding him, by dipping a morsel in his own cup and giving it to Judas. Whose feet were washed. Who'd been bathed with warm water and dried with a towel. And knowing who Jesus is and what he's about to do, Jesus does not throw him out. He bathes him, feeds him, which means that Judas is never, never excluded from the circle of friends. He's included until he excludes himself. And John, in a very simple way, says as he goes, it is night, darkness, dark as can be, <clears throat> leaving the light of the world, abandoning. But But Jesus, as soon as he's gone, doesn't speak of dark, but of light. Now the Son of Man has been glorified, he says, and God has been glorified in him. If God has been glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and will glorify him at once. There's a lot of glory. Judas sets stuff in motion. The soldiers will come and the crowds will cry for blood and sentence will be pronounced crucified. And soon Jesus will be scourged and crowned and lifted high on the cross. It will not look like glory to anyone but God. But Jesus knows. He knows that his death will shine like the sun. And that the time has come for him to practice what he's been talking about for three years. To lay his life down for his friends. Before he does, he gives them a new commandment. He says that they love one another. For he's about to love them in a way that they will blow their minds. This is how people will know who they are because Jesus' love will characterize them. They will love one another like that. That this is his last will and testament and the community charter for his people ever since that we should love one another. Everything else that he's taught them, this is the linchpin, this is the thread that holds it all together. The love of God and our love for one another. The true mark of discipleship. Not just knowledge, not just piety, not just kind of all those things. But death-defying love that should be theirs as well. There's a story by Jerome. He lived in the third century. And he was referring to the old John. John who wrote this. Ancient John. And saying right at the end of his life, he used to preach and teach. And people would say to him, John, you keep repeating the same message over and over again. Can you not give us another one? And the Apostle John replied that this is what the Lord commanded and this one thing, if it's obeyed, then it will be enough. Love one another, for Christ has loved you. Judas. What about Judas? Well, he excluded himself from the fellowship, from the final teachings, 14 to 17. We'll come on to those. Wonderful prayers. Wonderful truths for us. He could have stayed, but he didn't. He disappeared into the night, kicking the rock that would bring the avalanche down upon them. Removed himself from their reach. Judas, the sinner, the devil in disciples' clothing, the traitor frozen in the lowest circle of hell, who deserves everything he gets right and more. But here's what I want to know. Do you think Jesus died for him too? When he lays his life down for his friends, does that include Judas? The one who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me, Jesus said. He knew all along that one round the table would betray him. But Jesus doesn't. Jesus doesn't reject Judas, but loves him right till the end. The Messiah who'd washed the feet, knowing full well that one would betray him, fed them with the supper, knowing full well one would betray him. He was their Lord and went on giving himself, giving himself away because his faithfulness depends upon him, not us. When he dipped the the bread in his cup and handed it to Judas, He not only revealed who Judas was, he also showed who he was. The one who feeds his enemies, who goes on treating them as friends, loving them, loving them, loving them. You see, what I think this means is that Judas is indispensable in our understanding of this Last Supper. Judas of all people. His presence at the Last Supper is our lasting reminder that this meal is not only for the good and the right and the faithful. But also for the crooks and the double crosses and the spies and the imposters and the broken. It reveals who we are. You know, make no mistake about it, that knowledge may send us running from the room into the dark, into the dark, dark night, and we say, No, Jesus. But it also says, You're welcome, come. It may also mean we'll stay put, clinging to the edge of the table for dear life. If need be or better yet, clinging to the presence of the Lord at the head of the table, whose faithfulness doesn't depend on ours and whose death-defying love knows no end, that he is the food and drink that saves our lives, thawing our frozen hearts by taking them into his own. He is the broken, poured-out one who gives himself to us, offering to feed us again and again and again. Jesus, the healer. For all those who've been betrayed, Jesus knows and loves. If you've been in the recipient and it's just gone deep and in your heart and oh my goodness, come to Jesus. He has enough love for you and for your betrayer. I urge you, don't be like Judas and turn from Jesus. Even if you think, kind of, yeah, I'm here, and what do people think of me? Well, you know your heart. Do you love him? Do you know that you're the beloved disciple? Henry's going to come. We're going to sing a song. We're going to pray, purify. You know, these are deep things, aren't they? Really deep things, but faith isn't super.